as much as I like to fight everyone, yeah, yeah. I'm having a pretty good time here. Hey, um, hi, Katie. How you doing? Hi, I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Yeah, sorry to immediately just throw you in there, but that's normally how I open the show. I just say hi to the person that's there with me. <laughs> no, I love I love being thrown into yeah. a hello situation. <laughs> and I do. I'm just like, uh, I think it's, you know, I'm not a performer like most of the people that are on the show. So I'm like, I don't need the uh, monologue portion <laughs> of I, I the podcast. Great. Everyone, yeah, I'm like everyone's skipping the monologue portion. Exactly. I'm like, you know what? I'm just here to talk to this person about this specific thing. Let's get right into it. So, um, for everyone who hasn't read the description of the podcast, our guest today is um, Katie McVeigh. She's a comedian and a writer in LA now, but she has been in New York before, where I've met her, and we follow each other on social media and such. And um, I was just telling her before we started that. What was funny is that um, for some reason I was looking at your profile on Twitter and I saw that on your profile it says that you love heat, right? Yes, And I, I was like, high as shit. And I don't even know what time of the day it was, but I was like, oh my God, does she mean heat the movie or like the basketball team? Or <laughs> like, what is it? Just so I DM'd you that. <laughs> yeah, because I was like... Um, I don't know. Recently, I've been or maybe always I have been into movies. Well, I have always been into like thrillers, heists, um, horror. I'm very into like weird. I don't want to say weird. That's stupid. It's not weird. But like, I guess maybe genres that most often are identified as being like boy things. Right. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. That kind of thing. And Heat was a movie that I loved. Oh my God, Lucy. My cat, as soon as I'm having a Zoom or anything with someone, she's like, I have to be there. What's going on? I mean, that's on? classic animal behavior. <laughs> yeah. She's like, who are you talking to? Um, so, okay. Sorry. So he, when it came out in 95, right? I believe so. Yeah. Um, I was, so, yeah. I was like 14 years old. Okay. And I saw it when it came out and it was one of my favorite movies. It was my mom's favorite movie. Okay. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So I had a mom that was also into boy stuff. (laughs) So (laughs) I saw it early and I freaking loved it. And then I rewatched it, I think maybe for the first time since it came out recently. And I was like talking to people about it and I stumbled onto a thread that was using heat as an example of a movie that was just like another story about men and their guns. And okay. how this, yeah. And how it like was glorifying the destruction of women's lives at the, or like the glorification of men's violence at the expense of women's lives. And I was so mad, Katie, because I was like, what are you talking about? Are you crazy? Okay. So the main reason I want to talk to you about this is because you're a woman who, without my influence, (laughs) likes heat. And here's the thing, my argument and the thing I want to like ask you, what do you think about this? I did used to watch a lot of rom-coms when I was like a teenager, maybe early 20s. But I want to propose that heat is sort of a romantic thriller. Oh, absolutely. I would totally agree. I mean, I think... I think like 
I think one of the things I love about Michael Mann movies, so I didn't, I wasn't into movies until the last couple of years. And, um, same, that's so funny. I didn't have time until yeah. the pandemic. <laughs> I didn't have anyone who wanted to talk to me about movies. And yeah. then I started falling in love with a movie critic. So I, he and I watched a lot of movies together. I saw Thief in theaters with him when I was living in New York. Just and saw I it with like, my lover. It's mm-hmm. beautiful. That's a great movie. And I was like, I love this movie. This movie's fucking rocking my skull. And so he was like, you'd love Heat. So we watched Heat. And now it's the movie I watch whenever I need to celebrate anything. I spent three hours celebrating it. by watching Heat. And I would, and that's one of the things that I love about Michael Mann movies. And I would disagree with this thread that I didn't read. Yeah. Which is that I feel like Michael Mann movies, one thing I really like about them is that the violence in them is really violent. There are yeah. real consequences to it. You're never like, oh, violence is cool. Everyone just gets up. It's like a video game. No. no. It's like it it hurts people. And, it and hurts so people. it does and the it's opposite not, of glorifying it. Totally. And it's not without consequence. And it's not without those principal men feeling the loss and the hurt that they're causing. It's an incredible, I think also like if you look back, like step back from the interpersonal relationships, which I literally want to go through every single one with you. Okay. (laughs) But yeah, you're ready. But it's also like a commentary on, and here's the thing. Last week I did an episode um, about bell hooks book Mm -hmm. um, about masculinity. Right. And I don't want anyone to think that I'm like jumping on this, like, uh, Miss Andrea is a problem and I want to defend men trained. No, <laughs> I am not. I don't think you are either. <laughs> yes, exactly. No, I am concerned with the fact that we live in a patriarchal culture, which means most of our media and everything is patriarchal. And instead of rejecting it wholly, we can uh, critically look into it to see how it, uh, what it says about our relationships with others and help us clarify, I guess, what we could do and could want in our decisions that we make. And the people in this movie, all of their relationships ultimately are impacted by capitalism and patriarchy. Totally. By by the decisions that these men make outside of, I love this woman and how they impact the woman and the kid that they love and themselves. And they, and sure, like it's, I'm not saying like, oh, think of the poor men. It's like when we say all men are trash and all men are doing bad things to women, you are making, you're simplifying it, I think, in a way that is not useful, that it can be funny, I guess, (laughs) but it's not very useful for how we live our lives, raising people who are going to be men, marrying and dating people who are men, (laughs) you know, so. Absolutely. And like we live in such a culture that's perfect. Like the masculinity is so pervasive in our culture. So I think movies like Heat or Point Break by Kath- uh, the Catherine Bigelow movie are, yes. are good ways to explore and deconstruct the idea of masculinity. And that is a worthwhile pursuit. And I think like that is definitely true of Heat. I would argue that the romance of Heat is between the men and the violence that they cause. They like love totally. they love the chaos um, at the expense of every other human person in their life. Well, you know what? Um, there's... The reason I think it's a romantic romantic thriller is because there are so many layers of romance. The romance between the 
the cop and the robber. That's yes. crazy. Like the whole diner scene between Pacino and De Niro. We'll get into they're it. They're in love. I mean, yeah, they're in love with each other. They literally like they at the end scene of the movie is like, if you haven't seen the fucking movie from 1995, I'm sorry, whatever. Spoilers. No, but, no. No, First yeah. off, if you haven't seen the movie, th- honestly, you should be ashamed. You should exactly. You, what, are you you what are you doing? What are you doing? Three hours, right? It's on Hulu right now. Exactly. I know. I watch it with commercials like three times a week right now. It's timely. <laughs> it's fantastic. So the very end scene is like they, um, you know, De Niro, uh, sorry, Pacino, who's the cop, shoots De Niro, who's the like the mastermind of the heist crew. And Pacino, uh, sorry, De Niro says to him, like, you know, I told you that I wasn't going to go back to jail or whatever. And he puts his hand out and Pacino holds his hand and it is in this way of like, I don't want you to die alone. We understand each other. We connect as humans, even though we both had roles that put us in opposing points to each other. So their romance is incredible. You know what I mean? It is. I mean, it's like the, a tragic. The soundtrack kicks in and you're just like, whoa. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Absolutely. No. And I mean, talking about. The diner scene, I guess. It's just, it seems like it should go after all of the other relationship discussions because they all kind of build up to what I think the true romance is, which is the Pacino-De Niro one, right? Yeah, and I would argue, I mean, Pacino and De Niro in the movie are two sides of the same coin. Exactly. And so it's like really, I mean, you could read the movie as uh, an exploration of one person divided, subdivided into these different categories of man, because like we are, it's exploring this like one idea of masculinity that's like predicated on violence and chaos and like through a, a bunch of different lenses, right? Absolutely. And what it's doing is showing you that um, sort of for every character, every male character in this movie is torn between two polar desires. Mm -hmm. And one is their intimate need to love and be loved and however they think that should be done versus their their desire or their need to um, satisfy what patriarchy and capitalism says that they should be. So they, even in their, even in the like most bro-iest scenes where they're like, just four dudes talking together about their heist plan. Um, so you remember the scene where they basically realize the cops are on to them, right? Mm-hmm. And they meet up and De Niro's like to the rest of the crew, like, look, they're basically on to us. So we have two choices. We can either be out right now or we do this and we take all the risks. But everybody's got to be like full in, right? The action is the juice. Exactly. But that's what's so crazy. It's like, okay, so he is like, I'm not going to pressure any of you. He even says so to, what's his face? Um, Al character? No, or, the other one. Um, the Michael one with Rappaport. Rappaport. So Rappaport is an interesting one because Rappaport, what De Niro says to him is, your wife will take care of you. You have money in the bank. You have kids. You own a house. They don't know your name yet. You could just walk away. And he goes, whatever you do, man, I'm with you. Right. Mm -hmm. And here's the thing. Let's pause right there. If you are the woman who has a child, children and a home and a relationship with him and you were to watch this conversation and see him immediately be willing to risk all of that to just go along (laughs) with this man that he loves and looks up to. I think that would break your heart 
right? Well, it, except yeah. what he says to De Niro next is because De Niro says, pushes back and says, no, you have He's to like, no, you have to decide you on to you. Yeah. And, and then Rappaport says, the action is the juice, meaning yeah. that the, that the chaos of the heist is what he is in pursuit of, right? Is he's right. He an adrenaline it. rush. Exactly. And exactly. so I would argue that if you were the woman, the unnamed, barely seen woman married to Michael Rappaport, mm-hmm. you are not you are not ignorant to the fact that this is a man who pursues adrenaline over at the Tom Sizemore. Tom, Tom Sizemore. Sorry, not my I was like, I think we we're so wrong about this, but no, we got it. Tom Sizemore. I get names all the time wrong. People write emails. They're fine. Don't worry. <laughs> so the Tom well, Sizemore. Tom Sizemore says the action is the juice, which I feel totally. so. F- dear Tom Sizemore, I'm so sorry. I yeah. do have the action is the juice written above my desk. So <laughs> I'm really sorry that. I love it. You're like, I love this little tiny piece of toxic masculinity. I'm going to take well, it in. <laughs> it's an argument I use for creativity all the time because like, yeah. although my creative pursuits haven't necessarily netted me the economic gains, I am podcasting from a closet. The action <laughs> is the juice, you know? The- oh my God. Okay. Well, okay. Totally. This This works in how I'm seeing this though, because- De Niro, who is the ma- mastermind of the heist, I think also represents the purest extreme of pursuing the art with the intent to uh, sacrifice anything that doesn't fit into that lifestyle, right? So from the very beginning, he said, like, we learn he's never been married. He doesn't have children. He's never been in love. When he meets Amy Brenneman's character, it is, he's like in his late 40s and it's the first time he's actually feeling like he's in love with the person. And when he has a conversation with the cop and with his own heist buddies, he is the one who's like, you have to be ready to leave on the drop of a dime. You have mm-hmm. to be ready to leave everything behind. That is the price of pursuing this art. Because I think for the purpose of this movie, you know, if we take the diner conversation into account where Pacino and De Niro say to each other, like, well, this is the only thing I know how to do. It's the only thing I want to do. It is their art, right? So if Pacino getting into the mind of a criminal and pursuing them, that's his art. And for De Niro pulling off the perfect heist, that's his art. He's never going to stop doing it. But I would <laughs> argue know? De Niro is like the only responsible character in the movie. Like I agree. In terms no, of like other people's yeah. feelings. Like, cause like Absolutely. Pacino wants his cake he wants to have his cake and eat it too, but like meanwhile is destroying the lives of other people. Like Val Kilmer, the same. I mean, they're all destroying other people's lives except for really um Dennis Haysbert is like is like in a corner. And then De Niro is like, I'm not going to make connections that impact, yeah. that could be impacted by what I do. Yeah. Or even at the end when he well he very stupidly chose to go finish the business with uh, Wayne Grow instead of leaving with his woman. Here's what I'll tell you. I have watched this you movie agree? nine billion times and Wayne yeah. Grow is the only name I know. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone else, I'm just, yeah. like, you know, the guy. The actor, yeah, exactly. Totally. Wayne Grow's the only one that only, well, I just don't know that actor's name. Nobody yells. No, nor, nor do I. <laughs> We're like, I don't get, I don't care at all. But um, so it's interesting because, yeah, let's go back to Pacino because you're right in terms of like 
weirdly, you know, if we see this as having an element of copaganda, which anything with a cop does, and the fact that Pacino is the one that lives at the end does make it slightly copagandish. Uh, I, I would argue, I would argue against no? that. But, yeah. No, because like in the movie, I feel like Pacino and the cops are like, like, especially if you can compare and contrast those two scenes where we see the guys from the high crew and we see the cops all at dinner and they're, mm-hmm. and they're, the cops are clearly like way more out of control than the heist totally. guys who are like raising families and like living lives. Yes, the cops absolutely. are like no, shooting you, people in the streets. The heist no, guys you have, don't want to murder really anyone. That's yeah. a really good point. And then if you also remember the scene where uh, uh, De Niro and Val Kilmer are, they're like trying to fucking bore into a vault or some shit. And then Pacino is in a truck with a bunch of cops like all doing surveillance ready to catch them. And one of the SWAT dudes gets like antsy and wants to go out. And Pacino's like, just calm down, sit the fuck down. And the dude like leans against the truck too hard and his his gun hits the truck. So De Niro hears the bump and he like goes immediately inside and he tells Val Kilmer like, no, nah, man, we got to walk. Just leave everything behind. We got to walk. And so what we see repeatedly is that the heist team is more effective than the cops are at what they do. Well, also, they wouldn't have caused the violence of the movie, the central violence that creates the whole thing is by this guy who, like, is routinely murdering women in the background of right. this movie. Right now. And there is no effort. There's no cares. any yeah. effort to to solve those crimes. Well, also it's black women specifically. Yes. And, and I think and that's sex interesting. Workers yeah. Implied. yeah, exactly. So it is this, uh, you're right. It's not pro cop. You're definitely right. I guess the only thing that's pro cop is that Pacino survives. And the only reason I saw it as pro cop is because I agree with you about how he was more careless about his relationships, even though you kind of are tempted to see it as like, oh, he's a nice guy who cared about his stepdaughter and loved his wife and whatever. He said he had three marriages, you know, all this stuff. And when he has in the diner scene, when he talks to uh, De Niro, he's like, um, he asks him, like, what do you do with your lady? And De Niro's like, I tell her I sell, I'm a salesman, (laughs) you know? So he's lying to the woman he loves to, quote, protect her by keeping her out of his dirty business that could ruin her life, right? And that could totally. ruin her, her image of him. And Pacino is doing this other thing where he's like, I told you from the beginning that you were always going to have to share me with my job. And then his wife says, but this isn't sharing, this is leftovers because you don't let me into what's happening with the main thing in your in your life. Oh right? my God. Also in that scene, yeah. after she says that, Pacino goes off about like finding babies in microwaves or something. Yes, exactly. And it's like such bullshit. We never see that. We, no. we see so much of the lives of the characters in this movie. One of the things I really enjoy about this movie is that all of the characters have these kind of like really complicated and, and complete back stories like even people you only meet for a short period of time but Pacino I just feel my reading on that is that he's lying because Mm -hmm. he's like making his job seem so noble like he's really doing something but all we do is watch him walk around coked up as hell harassing (laughs) people and then like like, chilling with his bros and like chasing down this man that he's like passionately 
Well, but that's why I think that, like, uh, when he had the conversation with De Niro, I think he realized that because De Niro said to him, so, like, if I'm a guy that's willing to drop everything on a dime and you're obsessed with chasing me, then what kind of normal life are you building? And Pacino's like, oh, shit, you're right. Like, I have three divorces and whatever. So, again, they're they're two sides of the same coin where they are both uh, emotionally unavailable for the women in their lives, one by lying about who he is and the other by uh, emotionally compartmentalizing and leaving a person out of something that whatever is really happening in his work life is traumatizing him and is like dominating the majority of his psychic energy. And he's like refusing to share that with his romantic partner. So they're both examples of men. You can replace their jobs with any job with any art, <laughs> you know, and those are two very common models of relationships that women find themselves in with cis men. Absolutely. Right? And I think we see a lot of those different kinds of relationships and like the way that women exist or don't exist in this movie. And I mean, like I would, I think that the movie does a good job of exploring these, exploring those relationships by having women kind of be at the periphery of the movie. Um, but yeah, it is. It's so wild to me how Pacino goes through most of the movie being like, "I'm a great guy." Yeah, <laughs> you're the worst guy, my dude. Oh my god. Well, okay. So that's why one of my favorite scenes is the cheating scene. So you remember when he oh, comes? My God, that poor dude. So fucking funny. It's so funny. He comes back. So for Ripple and Zinan, he's like, first of all, they do have like a weird apartment that looks very 80s i don't know but he oh comes back God, and yeah. She, yeah. She, it's like the apartment of an art curator it's in so weird i love it and so he goes into the apartment and that he shares with his wife and his stepdaughter and she's there with a dude and maybe it looks like post-coital i don't know but it seems intimate and he like immediately he's like no my guy chill it's fine sit there but you can enjoy everything in this house except this TV. This is my TV. <laughs> and he like freaks out about taking the TV out. And I think it's like perfect because it is um, a sort of like pissing on what's mine situation. And he already felt like the woman wasn't his because he expected her to leave him since before she even had the idea that she would leave him because he was leaving her out the same way he left out the other women he had loved. Absolutely. In she was just calling his bluff. Exactly. And she, but now let's be slightly critical of the women, too, because what's interesting about this scene for the women is that she is exemplar of when we refuse to talk or I don't I try not to do it. But, you know, some of us may uh, to talk about the thing that is bothering us and instead sa- sabotage a relationship. Right. She, I mean, she did try to talk about it. She, she did talked. try to talk about You're it. Right. Yeah, she, she did like, try to talk about it. But then why not just be like, yeah, this isn't working. We need a divorce instead of like a weird dramatic. I'm hanging out with this guy. I now. mean, she's a mess too. She's <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. Like, like poor little, poor little Natalie Portman is left yeah. to for her lonesome. Poor thing. Because it's like two messy people living in this kind of like postmodern loft. Yeah. Um, with Natalie Portman maybe running around in the background. There is exactly. no indication as to where her bedroom might be in that weird and an, apartment. And an absent, an absent real dad who 
we keep hearing about and who is causing constant turmoil. So that's what's interesting is that there are so many versions of masculinity, as you said. So the even the absent dad, right, uh, Natalie Portman's dad, he is the reason that she is constantly going through some crisis of feeling and add to that the fact, fact that her mother doesn't really care or know how to deal with it. That's one version of like bad Absolutely. masculinity in the world. I mean, there is this kind of specter of a man, not just like yeah. her father who left, but also Al Pacino, where this like woman is like, if I marry and like complete the family set, like everything will yeah. all come together. And it's like, girl, that's not how this works. <laughs> yeah. Now there's Van Zant is also another version of a fucked up masculinity in our culture, which is like, I think to me he represents because he's weirdly just like a part of the thriller narrative of the movie not the romance part of it we don't see any of his relationships with women or with anyone else but what i think he represents is just the rich white man who doesn't have to take risks but does it for the thrill and usually wins so he's like the other side of the uh tom sizemore coin well he has such mitigated risks like that's why he doesn't take uh De Niro seriously. He doesn't take any of this seriously because any risks he's taken in his life, he's not had to deal with the consequences. And I think that's made very clear in just like him having this kind of like Henry Rollins plays this kind of like lackey who follows him around and like acts tough for him. Yeah. (laughs) Cause he doesn't, you know, he's like, he's like totally out to lunch. He like is not, he is not, related to any of the risks that he's taken in life. A very, very stockbrokery thing to do. <laughs> no, for for him, yeah, it's it's about status and fun and like the thrill of it, right? Yes. It's, it's very weird because for the rest of the men, maybe except for Pacino, it is life or death. It is, they don't really have another skill to fall back on. They haven't been trained on other jobs. Most of them are already ex-cons. So it's like they don't they don't have really another option other than to take risks with. And that's really made clear in the parolee um, narrative that Dennis Hazer is doing um, Hazert. I don't know. Uh, I got it right the first time. I got so sorry, Tom Sizemore. Uh, (laughs) Tom Sizemore is haunting me. Yes. Dead? Did he die? No, 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 no. I just meant the ghost oh, okay. of me. <laughs> <laughs> his character. His character. Yeah. yeah the, the ghost in my brain. Um. But yeah. So Dennis Hayesver, he like comes in and he like tries to do the quote unquote right thing, right? But then he's getting abused. He gets by a diner like a line system. Of job. Yeah. Yeah. And the and the diner guy is like, I'm taking half your pay. I'm. You don't get to do this. I. I. I own you because I can go to your parole officer and lie about and you. And you to jail any, yeah. any time. Yeah. And so what other options does he have except to like do this or be, you know, dehumanized on a near constant basis? Like those are yeah. his two options. And, you know, strangely we see, so he has a wife also or girlfriend maybe. And she likes, like, uh, we gather that she like stood by him 
through the time that he was in jail. And now she's like supporting him after he got out and like loving him and treating him respectfully, even though he feels like he's at a low point in his life where he's like in capitalism and in patriarchy, he's just like stepped on every day. And she like tells him like, no, I respect you and I love you. And then if you compare that to the Ashley Judd character, I think that's really interesting, too, because it's not to say she's like bad and this one's good. It's not. It's just all the different ways that women are positioned to react to patriarchy and capitalism mm-hmm, instead totally. of really have a choice. You know what I mean? So Ashley Judd's character is like maybe even the the version of relationships that was most familiar to me as a Latin American Catholic, <laughs> you know, but it was like a woman who... um really believed in the traditional version of marriage that a a man's job is to like provide for his woman and his child and keep them in like a great situation and be loyal, all this, you know, very traditional patriarchal uh, man, woman, cis relationship type stuff. So she even went as far as to support him in his criminal endeavors. But as soon as he, it was clear that he put his criminal endeavors slash his art, (laughs) right, Um, ahead of her, then she became resentful of the fact that she didn't get enough attention, that she was not enough a part of his life, which are valid, valid concerns. A big part of their argument is like Mm -hmm. he has a gambling addiction. A gambling addiction, yes. And she has put herself in this position where she's kind of financially beholden to him. Yes. And so she is kind of, like, we don't see her really outside of the home, like, period, no. in the movie. Like, she's in one apartment or another. Like, and yeah. And, like, she is kind of in this walled castle, which does seem like this very powerful just, position, but then but isn't. But she's right? not just in a walled castle. No, because in every single scene, she is in a situation where she is beholden to a man who mm-hmm. she cannot escape his power, whether mm-hmm. it's her husband or her husband's boss, right? De Niro, when he like yells at her because he catches her having an affair um, or the FBI or whatever the agency is that is like forcing her to turn on her husband and threatening her kid. It To me, she is not a bad guy. She is the extreme example of what happens when a woman does truly buy into the capitalist patriarchal form of relationships and goes all in on this and then is fully dependent on a man who may or may not have such other dependencies and problems with patriarchy and capitalism. And then they're never actually free from those mechanisms. They are, they just are temporarily maybe finding a, a good place. Right. So right. when it, yeah, go ahead. I mean, I was going to say she's totally trapped at the end, too. Totally, right? yeah. Because she, she uh, and Val Kilmer make eye contact from a balcony. She's yeah. like, get out of here. She signals to him using her eyes. Um, she's romantic and beautiful. <laughs> she's romantic and beautiful. She's yeah. Like, FBI. Um, yeah. Police. Um, mm-hmm. But she, but the, as a result, she's got nothing. She is no one because everyone yeah. she knows is kind of like tied up in the system. And not just that, but she's literally still under the threat from the police of like, if you don't produce 
something we can take to court or catch your husband in or anything like that, we can put this on you. And they've right. been telling her, we can take your child away from you. So it is, you know, what do you make of the fact that Val Kilmer is the only one that survives? So he is, I think, if Ashley Judd is the hyper feminine um, negative victim uh, archetype, I think Val Kilmer is the hyper masculine uh, version of that because Sounds he's like- the one who's like, like you said, gambling. He lives on thrills. He, I think he doesn't even necessarily care about having a wife or child. He just did it because it's what you're supposed to do. And then he gets frustrated that they get in the way of the things he wants to do. Yeah. But he, he loves, loves actually Judd, but like, yeah, he loves her. Um, he loves her kind of As like an theoretically. Like he loves the idea that she's there at the end of the night. Yeah. But like, if he wants to go out and like cause mayhem, yeah. she better still be there and she better be happy about it. Absolutely. Or he'll take your kid and your bank account and your everything. And like, yeah. I, I feel like I harp on the fact that like women in America couldn't get credit cards until like 1975. But I want you to understand that this movie is 20 years after that. So like, understand that women were trapped in a, in a lot of situations where they couldn't get out. And so that's why I'm like, what do you make of the fact that like, all the ones that I think we've seen had more noble intentions towards the people in their lives than Val Kilmer did. Why is he the one that lives? Well, he lives because of, because of her. Ashley Judd. He lives because yeah. of her. She, yeah. she doesn't betray him. She um, stays true to him. And like, he is the recipient of her largesse on multiple levels, you know? Yeah. Like he, he knows, he, knows that she can take care of herself like at the end of the day and so he doesn't have to like go in and save her but also you know she's like hey get out of here she's so crazy you know what you just clarified for me because I as someone who grew up with like a lot of strong women in my life but a lot of dead men (laughs) and men in jail that makes me really sad because it's like a continued example of women having to be strong and like take the hit for this whole system to keep working. Right. Absolutely. I mean, Ashley yeah. Judd, I think her character is strong at the end of the day. Yeah. Right? She's under this enormous pressure from the state. And she's like, I don't care. My interpersonal yeah. relationships trump whatever you're trying to threaten yep. me with. And, you know, Velcomer, even though he's really, you know, not giving her the credit she deserves he knows that at the end of the day she could take care of business like he she doesn't need him she chose yeah she chose him and she chose to be by his side always um yeah which is interesting because it's she didn't bail in any way in the way that like Pacino's wife was ready to bail right no because Pacino's wife is like she she is trying to use him on the same way that he's trying to use her. Like he's the trying idea to use her love. to like, yeah. yeah, to like, to kind of tap into this idea of being a normal man. And she's yeah. trying to use him to try to tap into this idea of like recreating the nuclear family in order to like preserve the mental health of her daughter without actually having to do any mental health work. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, let me ask you this. What do you make of Edie? What do you think of her? Um, so that. Amy Brenneman, the one that was dating, uh, or like Robert De Niro, right. 
they, met I her, her in like a Niles every time I see her. <laughs> um, I mean, she's just so young. Mm. She's just so young. And I think like one of my favorite scenes in oh, this movie. Let me look it, up the age difference. <laughs> he is, she is, um, I mean, in the movie, she's she's played young too. She's not like well, she's she's played even whatever, regardless of the age, she's played naive. Yeah, right? she moved here to start a she moved to LA to start a graphic design job and is now working totally. in a borders. She's like yeah. truly where is she? And dream, she's living dreams. in the, Well, and I think like I think the movie makes that clear, like on a visual level too. Because yeah. that scene where they're in Echo they're at her apartment in Echo Park or whatever, it's supposed to be in Echo Park, and they're like looking at the hills. And it seems to me that they green screened in the background of Los Angeles. And I love that they did that because it adds this kind of like falseness to this movie mm-hmm. that's really been based in realism. And yeah. I think it like gets at the fact that like Amy this Brennan's is a fantasy for both is, of them. Yes, exactly. Yeah. She doesn't want to know him. She yeah. doesn't want to know him. She just wants. Yeah. She just wants to think that like maybe someone can sweep yeah. in and like figure her life out for her. <laughs> and not just that, but that she she kind of represents the like I can fix him, I can change him kind of. Well, thought. I don't even think she's looking to fix him so much as she's looking to well, fix but, her. Like she's like, no. I don't know anything about you. I'm coming to New Zealand. <laughs> <laughs> but she's also like, uh, by willing to run away with him, she's like, okay, because she was, do you remember when he told her the truth, right? So we know he lied to totally. her at first. And then he finally like tells her the truth. And he's like, you know, I love you, but here's the thing. I'm a criminal. It's very possible that like in 24 hours, I got to go. Would you want to, like, go with me? <laughs> Time, usually it's my fault. I kick a cable and we get disconnected and then I have to <laughs> put it together. So it's totally fine. Everybody's used to it. But we were talking about Edie. Oh, fuck. What were you saying about Edie? Do you remember? Oh, I was just saying, yes, I do remember. I was saying, like, one of the things that I think is really interesting is in that scene where De Niro reveals his real job to her, there is this, like, sense of menace. There is this moment where she there there's this kind of idea that like maybe he's gonna hurt her. Maybe yeah. she's in over her head. Oh my god, no. And there's also like even after she decides to go with him and he decides like they're literally on the fucking highway on their way out. Pacino has no idea where they are. He could have fucking left with her and he like beelines, whatever, to I'm going to go do one more thing before we leave. And the thing he's going to do is go to kill Wayne Grove because he can't let this one go. So he parks the car and he tells her he's just going to do something for for a second. Keep the car running. I'll be right back. And as we see him going up into the hotel to find the dude who betrayed him and got his team killed, he we also see her in the car just like wringing her hands and just very much aware. Like I'm not even a like energy person (laughs) or whatever, but you can tell that she feels that something very bad is about to happen. Well, there's also like all of these cops around. Well, they start even before that it starts like she's very stressed out even before. And then once the cops and emergency and SWAT starts to show up, she is like super freaked out. But she to me is like she really is a trope um i would say of all the women even though maybe she has more lines i guess i don't know i still think she like really represents a trope of like the it's not even gendered but the idea that love trumps everything 
Well, and also that like falling in love can figure out your life for you. Exactly. Like you don't need exactly. to figure out your life. You just need to find someone. You just find someone that you don't need to understand how capitalism is stressing you out, how your job is stressing you out. You don't need how, to understand like, yourself. Like she's exactly. like, like she like knows nothing about nothing. And she's like, exactly. I found a guy. Time to hang my hat. Time to get out of here. Well, also just to go back to the copaganda idea, mm-hmm. like one the Wangra stuff is like very powerful to me as to why this isn't a copaganda film because yeah. the cops protect this murderer. Totally. Oh, like, you're so right. The only person who takes care of this guy who is straight up serial killing in Los Angeles in the, the background criminal. of this movie yeah. is De Niro. Yeah, you're right. You're right. And that's uh, actually, man, I hadn't even thought about that. But that's in, that's what I will say moving forward is like how it's also um, sort of a critique of the idea of like hero versus bad guy, you know? Yeah, absolutely. As my grandfather yeah. always used to say, cops and robbers are the same people. Um, mm-hmm. But like this movie is like just just if you were aware, definitely true. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, Trejo's character, damn, we didn't see too much, but, uh, Oh God, the saddest scene in the movie though. I know. And also, I mean, it is still yet another side of masculinity where he was the weak point in their team in that he was the one that got tortured to get information. Uh, Wayne Grove tortured him, I believe on behalf of Van Zandt. And the reason that this man's loyalty because we we've already seen like how loyal this team is to each other the reason he broke his loyalty was because they were threatening the woman that he loves and de niro once their whole heist falls apart he realizes like the weak point had to be the one person who was supposed to be there and wasn't there which was trejo So he goes to find him and he walks into like a bloodbath and sees that they killed his woman and he's like barely alive. Trejo's barely alive. And Trejo tells him like they had her, you know, like I had to tell them I'm sorry. And then De Niro shoots him. And it's such a, to me, like saddest, one of the saddest scenes in the movie, because it's like, um, the one who spent most of his life alone and not knowing love in order to not hurt others has to kill the one who loved someone so much that he betrayed all of his ideals. And well, also, I mean, I think that scene makes the argument that there are so many different types of love, right? Yeah. It's like... The bonds that De Niro has with the people in his life are just as important as the romantic bonds that, like, we don't see too much of but occur off screen. And the the scene is no less painful just because they're not in a romantic relationship, you know? And I think, yeah. and like, also, those, those, the, the relationships between the men in the movie are so much more honest than the relationships that they have with the women in their lives. Yeah, totally. Uh, but it's so sad that uh, the commentary in general about masculinity is that they can only emotionally connect in these like very compartmentalized spaces. That seems terrible because it's also like a 
one of the things that we see with all of the women in this movie is that they are all they're all sad that they are not fully led into these men's inner lives in the way that they let in their other boys. Well, yeah, and the movie's told through the men's perspective, right? So yeah. we're not seeing, like, as far as we know, no woman in the movie has a female friend. Like, not a exactly. single one. Everyone's floating around, just free basing, free balling, no friends. Yeah. And, like, that's not true, right? But, like, yeah. we're seeing it all through the perspective of, like, these dudes who are, like, these are the things I have to focus on. That's it. Period. End of. And, like, all of the feelings we get to perceive for women are, like, mediated through the ma- – I mean, I think, like, this is especially clear in the scene where that mother tries to see her daughter's body. Yeah. Um, and then Pacino just, like, hugs her. And it's like, that's – Pacino. It's not about you. It's <laughs> like, out of here. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> no, definitely. Uh, that is one, I guess, like, point for the people who feel like – no, it absolutely is a male um, – point of view it's written by a male and directed by a male and it's a story about males but it doesn't negate that it is incisive about how this affects women and it's not just using them as tools you know like for me a lot of these relationships even though you're right and they were uh, absolutely only being displayed from the point of view of the men it made me think about conversations I've had with women friends where they might be experiencing a similar type of relationship, but they're not seeing the in, this inside conversation. Does that make sense? Like, yeah, I they're mean, I like, think- why doesn't he let me in? Is he cheating? And then it's like, no, he just thinks that you will judge him about like what his interests are, and so he lies to you about what he's actually doing with his free time. Well, also, <laughs> like, none of these men are able to like adequately explain their emotions to themselves or anyone else, and they instead yeah. sublimate them through all these violent actions. And it's like, exactly. it's like my dudes, my dudes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, but you know, it's like, uh, that's also what men who are workaholics do and men who are like hyper into sports do, um, um, which does not mean that there are not men who are out here doing the work of being in touch with themselves and their feelings and the people in their lives. But this, that is an exception, I think, to masculinity, masculinity is it? it is a new emerging form of masculinity to be in touch with your feelings and to try to communicate them to others. Um, these are all versions of, I think, something older, but that still affects all of us. So I'm like, why wouldn't you really find... I don't know, if you like a, a romantic comedy, I don't know why you wouldn't like Heat. <laughs> I mean, I, I agree with you 100%. Yeah. Heat is a heat is a romance. I mean, Point Break is a romance. These are all romances. Absolutely. And just yeah. because they're romances of an unusual variety does not mean that they're yeah. any less romantic. They're not yep. comedies though. I would I would argue if you want to see a romantic comedy, you're not you shan't find it here. This is uh, Yeah, no, no. This high is high drama. Serious. Yeah. Yeah, this is extremely seriously about relationships and It's a BBC and, masterpiece and theater sort of <laughs> yeah. thing. Yeah. 3 exactly. hours of just pure tears. Um But it, but doesn't doesn't that make it super interesting that like it is widely considered to be a movie for men and by men and men love it and then they all like any man you talk to between the ages of like I would say like at least like 28 to 45 fucking loves heat so and and I would argue that 
you know, based on having a lot of men friends and having talked to them about this movie, they have not considered that this is a romance at all. <laughs> like, I, it's hard like, for me. It's such a to wrap my mind around this, film. just They're because like, I come from a oh, family. Boys having my father loves a Hallmark movie, and my that. husband loves to talk about <laughs> the romance like, no, of heat. What do you mean? So, <laughs> and I just think that's so funny because, um, is it more effective to expect? I guess men to watch things um, that are telling them straight up, oh, this is, these are some of the critiques of masculinity and this is, these are your options. Or isn't it also effective in something we should embrace when men themselves are exploring the, the conflicts within masculinity that they experience and appreciate it? Oh, shit. What I was saying yesterday before my internet got cut off is that the thing I love most about Heat is that there's so much to take from the movie. There's so many layers to it. There are so many characters to explore. But for me, over the last couple of years, during um, the lockdown and the post-lockdown period, I really have been trying to figure out who I am creatively since most of my creative work was on stage. Um, And now I'm been forced into this position where I'm doing kind of more private creative work and um he taught me a lot of lessons (laughs) insofar that when Tom Sizemore says to Robert De Niro no the action is the juice that was a lesson that I really took home with me and I in fact have post-it notes all around my house that say that because with creativity you have to enjoy the creative process if you're not enjoying the process There's no point in doing it at all because you have no control over the outcome. You don't know how other people are going to perceive it. You really can't even know if it's going to be good. You have to enjoy the process. So every day I try to wake up and be a little bit more like heat and remind myself that the action is the juice. Anyway, thanks so much for having me on your podcast. And I hope to be on it again when my Internet's more stable. Uh, I'm Katie McVeigh. Uh, if you're looking to find me online, uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Katie McVeigh. I also just launched a newsletter uh, where I do cultural criticism on Sundays and funny bits on Tuesdays. Um, and you can find that at katiemcvay.substack.com. And um, I perform stand-up in L.A., hopefully more places soon, uh, because, you know, the grind. You're grinding. All right. Anyway, thanks so much for having me. Bye. Bye.